This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and there is just too much going on, isn't there? You know, I remember having the Trump board game when I was 10 years old, so I've always felt like I had a certain authority on the subject as I had been long acquainted well before I knew he was going to run for president. I thought he would win. You don't have to believe me on any of these things, but ultra. And I've been telling my friends, he's not leaving. He is not leaving. So I don't know what's going to happen over there. The markets had this. I And I think that's why the markets, after an initial boom, when the COVID Pfizer news came out, in case you missed that, Pfizer has a vaccine that is 90% effective, supposedly. Some people think it's irresponsible what they're doing and the sample was too small. And the market rocketed up on that and the Biden victory, but it quickly kind of took back its gains. And I think nobody was saying it in the media, but I think it's based on this uncertainty. I think there's a whole lot of uncertainty about this presidential election because right now you're having a kind of a crazy game of chicken between Trump and basically, you know, the establishment. So scary times. Now, precious metals, gold took a big hit. I think it's recovered a little bit. Still below $1,900. Still fantastic for the miners. But, you know, we were talking about crypto. We've talked about crypto for the last month here, maybe a little longer. So we're actually relatively new at talking. I only really introduced myself to this stuff in August. But what I'm seeing here is almost a daily capitulation, you almost want to call it, by Wall Street people. The latest is Stan Druckenmiller, who you might remember ran the portfolio for the George Soros Quantum Fund. He is now saying, oh, you probably want some Bitcoin and with your gold. And if gold goes up, Bitcoin's probably going to go up a whole lot more. So, you know, watch that space. Pay attention to this Bitcoin thing because I see a tsunami coming. You know, I tell my friends, maybe I'm just a over-exaggerating person. This crypto space, in my view, has the potential, and this is all opinion, this is not investment advice. Uh, this is just a assessment. I think this thing has the makings of a South Sea bubble, tulip mania type thing in the works here. I think this could be unprecedented in our lifetimes. Who knows? Maybe a crazy thought from over here, from your, from your Northern Miner podcast. That's what I see happening with this crypto thing. Who knows? But I mean, when you're trading tokens on a decentralized exchange. And you know what's crazy about it? It's really fun. It's really fun. So, and I think that might be the winning part. It's like Wall Street. It's like this whole virgin territory that has not been explored. And so Wall Street is so Stan Druckenmiller. I actually have the audio. It's 15 seconds. Let's just play it now. And then we're going to get to the Global Mining Symposium, which is today. I have warmed up to the fact that 
um, Bitcoin could be an asset class <clears throat> that has a lot of attraction to it as a store of value to both millennials and the new West Coast money. And as you know, they've got a lot of it. It's been around for 13 years and with each passing day, it picks up more, more of its stabilization of a brand. So I own many, many more times gold than I own Bitcoin. But frankly, if the gold bet works, the Bitcoin bet will probably work better because it's thinner and more liquid and has a lot more beta to it. So there you have it, Stan Druckenmiller on CNBC. So that's all getting very interesting. Now, turning to the Global Mining Symposium, that starts today. And we are going to try and check in early and put it at the end of this podcast. That is the plan. You never know how these things turn out at the start. Sometimes maybe it's just like instructions to delegates. Let's see what we have, but that's what we're going to try and do. I have a plan B if it doesn't work out, but that is the plan. And it looks like an awesome lineup that the events team have put together once again. And it includes... David Rosenberg, Andrew Cheadle, Chris Grove, Lisa Davis from Paratree Securities. We also have uh, the Ernst & Young Thought Leadership Panel and EY. You've probably seen them on Bloomberg or CNBC. They're making the rounds. And here they are at the Northern Miners Global Mining Symposium. They're talking about cybersecurity, which kind of nobody wants to think about until – I always joke, half joke about security – as a political issue, it's like when no no one's really too worried about it, when no one's thinking about it, but when, when it becomes an issue, it's the issue. So if you are part of a mining company, you probably want to watch this. And you can still register. That's actually coming up today. And you can still register at northernminer.com slash GMS. There is still time. I see a register for free button Jump on it while you can. I don't know if they're going to close that up or not, but you can check northernminer.com slash GMS. There's also the CEOs of mining companies, including Rob McEwen and John McConnell from Victoria Gold. And Serafino Iacono is interviewed by Trish Saywell, and he's the executive chairman of Grand Columbia Gold. We have people, Matthew Horner from Maple Gold Mines, Gary O'Connor, Moneta Porcupine, we have Hardline, who is a silver sponsor, and they have been huge supporters of the Northern Miner for years now. So shout out to Hardline. Need mining equipment? Go visit our silver sponsor, Hardline. If you like the Northern Miner, go visit Hardline. And many more. And of course, I almost missed David Elliott, Vice President and Director of Haywood Securities. I think he might be the founder as well of Haywood Securities. I could be wrong about that, but I, I believe so. So anyways, a ton to look at here and yeah, go check it out. And it's, you know what, it's a lot of fun and they usually have pretty good music. So that helps too. And don't feel like you have to sit in front of the computer all day. Like just put it on. I went for a bike ride last time and it was great. It was a beautiful summer day. And, you know, I took in a few presentations. Okay, let's go for a little 20 minute bike ride. And then I come back and it's on. Oh, who's this? So enjoy yourself with it. And the agenda's up there too. So have fun with that. And if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter 
at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube, where we now host these podcasts as well, and wherever podcasts are available, including Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have more news on China. This has been an ongoing theme. We see the increasingly prominent relation between geopolitics and natural resources. And China is tightening trade restrictions on Australian imports. And this is a fantastic story by Carl A. Williams, our science and senior reporter at the Northern Miner. And I'm going to get right into it here. China has stepped up trade restrictions against Australia, with at least one clearinghouse suspending imports of a range of agricultural and mineral products, Hong Kong's daily English-language newspaper, the South China Morning Post, reported on November 3rd. That same day, Bloomberg News also reported that the Chinese government had ordered commodity traders to stop purchasing products including coal, barley, copper, ore, and concentrate, sugar, timber, wine, and lobster. Wine and lobster, very targeted industries. These actions will take effect on November 6th, according to Bloomberg. So within days, Australian Trade Minister Simon Birmingham told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that his government was seeking more information about the November 3rd media reports. Sounds like China is not happy with Australia. They're not even telling them. They're just doing it. It doesn't really get much more confrontational than that and said China would be breaching worldwide trading rules if it discriminates against Australian produce. And we have a quote from Birmingham. China has consistently denied any targeting of Australia and spoken about its commitment to trade rules. In the spirit of their statements, we urge relevant Chinese authorities to address concerns of sectors like the seafood trade to ensure their goods can enter the Chinese market free of disruptions, end quote. In a note today, Stratfor, a geopolitical intelligence platform, stated that Australian wool would also be subject to the trade restrictions and that China plans to ban Australian wheat imports at an as-yet-undetermined date. Now, this could really backfire on China, is my pedestrian view of this. China has, what, 1.6 billion? Is that how many people? If they have a drought, I mean, they must be pretty confident in their supplies of wheat and copper and lobster and wine and timber and sugar and coal. If they think that they can ban Australian imports, they must be very confident in their supply lines. But those are a lot of things to just say, hey, we're not buying because what could happen is all of a sudden if they're, they have a lack of one of these products, they could really be potentially shooting themselves in the foot in the mid to long term here. So continuing on, on November 2nd, Chinese authorities halted timber imports from Queensland, barley from Australia-based emerald grain, and increased scrutiny on rock lobster imports, according to Reuters. The news agency said China also settled barley with steep tariffs, suspended some beef imports. See, I bet they would have canceled their beef imports, but they probably need the beef. 
suspended some beef imports, and launched anti-dumping investigations into wine imports as well. And we have a quote from Richard McGregor, senior fellow at the Lowy Institute, a think tank in Sydney. And he told Bloomberg, quote, China seems determined to punish Australia and make it an example to other countries. They want to show that there's a cost for political disagreements, end quote. The Australian government is also seeking clarity over Beijing's reported moves to discourage Australian coal and cotton purchases. On October 14th, BHP reported it had received deferment requests from Chinese coal customers after reports that China reportedly put a freeze on accepting Australian coal. According to Reuters, China is Australia's most important export market worth around $104 billion last year. Now, some of the cause of this, Australia's ties with its top trading partner soured in 2018 when it banned China's Huawei technologies from its 5G network, citing national security concerns. That was probably from pressure from the U.S., the whole 5i network there. Relations between the two countries worsened in April when Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison called for an independent investigation into the coronavirus outbreak. Tensions rose further when Australia, I mean, and back to that, like the independent investigation, because what wasn't clear about the coronavirus outbreak was basically the perception was that the Chinese government was suppressing the news on the virus. And I think the reason, I could be wrong, but my impression is the reason some people were calling for an investigation was the nefarious question, did the Chinese government leadership allow people with the virus to go out of the country on purpose? Did they knowingly spread the virus? That was the, and and China really didn't like that, right? But that's the contentious claim. And so where are we now? And then Tensions rose further when Australia formally rejected China's territorial claims in the South China Sea in July, and earlier that month suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong after Beijing imposed new security laws in the former British colony. So really getting tense over there between China and Australia. It's kind of interesting from a Western point of view. Australia, I mean, we don't really think about Australia that much. But when you think about that region of the world, it really is kind of a Western outpost in a fairly Eastern area, you could say. And, you know, they have Western-style government. They, you know, have good relations generally with almost everybody in the West. So, I think Australia is becoming an increasingly important place. I actually saw online people were saying, buy Australian wine to support Australian winemakers. So fascinating developments there. You really see how mining and geopolitics collide. And I think it's only becoming more so. I don't really, it's always been that way, but to me, it's getting more pronounced that relationship. Continuing on, Australia to ramp up production of critical minerals. So here we have a story a week later from Valentina Ruiz Leotode, mining.com. We're connecting all the dots for you guys here. 
So in response or as a result of trade really coming not maybe to a halt, but really slowing down between Australia and China, Australia is ramping up its rare earths and other critical minerals in a bid to diversify the global supply chain. It sounds like the Australian government has put together a report, and what they did is they looked at the lists of critical minerals published in markets such as the US, the European Union, and Japan, and matched those against Australia's known geological endowment. It's almost like what a startup would do. It's just a simple question. Okay, what critical minerals does everybody need and what do we have? And it's hard not to see this story in the context of the last story. So, yeah, things are getting real for Australia over there. And we have another rare earth story, energy fuels... Along the same lines here, produces REE concentrate at White Mesa. That was pretty fast. Uh, so Energy Fuels, which is generally considered a uranium company, there's a story we had I mean, two or three months ago that they were going to process rare earths at their White Mesa mill in southeastern Utah. And it sounds like they have done their first REE concentrate from monazite sands in any significant quantity in North America in over 20 years. Monazite is a naturally occurring mineral containing rare earths and radioactive elements such as uranium and thorium. Now, thorium is a very interesting, I think it's a nuclear element. But yeah, I've heard there are people out there that are big thorium. I wouldn't call them bulls, but they're saying we should get all our energy from thorium and it's just a PR problem according to these people. Interesting. Anyways, continuing on, Let's just see. We have a quote from Mark Chalmers, president and chief executive of Energy Fuels. Let's see what he has to say. Quote, by using existing infrastructure and technologies at the mill to recover the uranium and the rare earths from monazite sands, we're able to avoid the years of permitting and development, along with the tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars of capital that others would be faced with. Sounds pretty interesting. So you can read more about that on northernminer.com. Shifting gears a little bit, an English court has blocked a lawsuit against BHP over the Brazil dam failure. And let's just touch on this. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi, mining.com. And the High Court of Manchester, Northwestern England, on November 9th, blocked a five billion pound lawsuit against BHP over a devastating dam collapse at an iron ore mine in Brazil in 2015, which killed 19 people and became the worst environmental disaster in the country's history. The suit filed last year by 235,000 Brazilian people and groups, including indigenous tribes and the Catholic Church, claims the world's top miner was, quote, woefully negligent in the run-up to the Samarco dam failure. They were seeking compensation for physical and psychological injury, property damage, moving costs, loss of earnings, loss of water supply, and lost fishing income. So BHP responded, I mean, it's probably their lawyers, but their lawyers represent them. They said the group action was, quote, pointless and wasteful, as it said it, quote, duplicated Brazilian proceedings. It also noted that victims were already receiving compensation through the Renova Foundation, a redress program set up in 2016 by its Brazilian divisions, Marco and Valet. 
The mining giant said it had already spent more than $1.7 billion U.S. on monthly financial aid to about 130 indigenous Krenak families and projects, including rebuilding three villages and establishing alternative water supply systems. So that lawsuit was thrown out by a Manchester judge. You wonder how, like, if it's a Brazilian lawsuit, I mean, I wonder, do they care if a Manchester judge throws it out? Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, things I know nothing about. More ESG-related news with top miners. Australia greenlights human rights complaint against Rio Tinto. It's by Mining.com staff. Australia's Human Rights Law Centre has issued a statement saying that the residents of Bougainville in Papua New Guinea have welcomed this week's decision by the Australian government to accept a human rights complaint against mining giant Rio Tinto for investigation and conciliation. The complaint was filed by the HRLC on behalf of 156 Bougainville residents, and it alleges environmental and human rights violations caused by Rio Tinto's former Panguna mine on the island. The operation was run by Rio Tinto subsidiary Bougainville Copper and was abandoned in the 1990s due to a civil war. 25 years later, in 2016, Rio Tinto handed its shareholding to national and local governments, but people in Bougainville said the miner is responsible for vast quantities of waste left by the copper and gold mine, which are poisoning their water resources and flooding their lands and sacred sites and causing a range of health problems. So that is going ahead. And before we wrap up here, I just want to touch on the earnings. Franco Nevada posts record Q3 revenues and income. These include new records and revenues recorded of $280 million adjusted EBITDA, which hit $235 million and net income of $153 million. Check this out. In the quarter, Franco Nevada sold 134,817-ounce gold equivalent at cash costs of $290 per ounce. They are hitting records at Franco Nevada. At Barrick... Barrick reports record free cash flow, increases dividend. Barrick is on track to meet its 2020 guidance of 4.6 to 5 million ounces of gold. Mark Bristow announced, chief executive, on the company's third quarter earnings call. And this is an excellent article, by the way. This is by Trish Saywell, our editor in chief, and she does a deep dive on Barrick's conference call, and it's awesome. So, Check this out. It's Barrick Reports record-free cash flow, increases dividend. And let's just take a quick look at the numbers. Net earnings in the quarter tallied $726 million, up from 415 In the second quarter, with adjusted net earnings per share of $0.41, cents, up from $0.23 cents in the previous quarter, Barrick cut its debt net of cash by 71% to $0.4 billion and has no significant maturities until 2033. Those people who have been following Barrick for a while know that Barrick had some debt issues, particularly before Mark Bristow showed up. So that's quite a number. Barrick cut its debt net of cash by 71% to $0.4 billion. That's impressive. The company reported all-in sustaining costs in the quarter of $966 per ounce gold, down from $1,031 per ounce in the second quarter and $2.31 per pound for copper, up from $2.15 per pound in the previous quarter. And finally, let's just take a look at the dividend. Barrick increased its third quarter dividend to $0.09 per share, up 12.5% from the previous quarter. And it's the third time the gold major has raised its quarterly dividend this year. 
and it has tripled since Barrick merged with Rangold Resources in September 2018. And finally, just a quote from Mark Brissot. As I trust today's results will show in the face of an unprecedented challenge, we have been able to beat earnings consensus, reinforce our planning, and capitalize on the gold price to create an industry-leading balance sheet. Mark Bristow, very impressive. Now, gold stocks yesterday got hammered on the Pfizer news, and so that was interesting. Quickly going to Kirkland Lake, their earnings were boosted by the Detour Mine, and this is an interesting little tidbit here. So Kirkland Lake took over Detour Gold earlier this year, and it's Detour Lake Mine, and now that mine accounts for more than 40% of the company's 2020 free cash flow. And Chief Executive Tony McCook said in a statement, quote, we are extremely pleased with the contribution already being made by the Detour Lake mine, which generated $231 million of free cash flow in the first eight months since the transaction. So it was a $4.4 billion acquisition. So it wasn't small, but it added 14.8 million ounces to Kirkland's reserves. Now, 14 point, let's just call it 15 million times a $2,000 gold price. That's a $30 billion. So they paid 4.4 billion Canadian. They paid 3.4 billion US for $30 billion of reserves at a $2,000 gold price, but they still have to get it out of the ground. And so, but pretty interesting, isn't it? No wonder they wanted that. That's huge. And finally, Cameco reports $61 million loss in Q3. Their stock took a hit when they put out those earnings. So, yeah, Cameco, you know, the uranium guys, they keep the faith, but man, that's been a tough trade. The last, it's been, when was Fukushima? 2010, 2011? And it's been a tough trade ever since. And the fundamentals look phenomenal, but I guess that's what you call a value trap, uh, this uranium trade, because some people might debate whether there's value there. Anyway, all very interesting. So that's your mining news. And now let's turn to metal prices. And turning to metal prices on November 10th, gold is trading at $1,878.39 per ounce. That is $11 lower than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $24.07 per ounce. That is $0.14 lower than last week's quote. Let me just turn off my email. Platinum is trading at $873.23 per ounce. That is only $2 lower than last week's quote, and palladium is trading at $2,483.52. That is $228 higher than last week's quote, so a big jump in palladium. Copper has launched to $3.15. That is $0.11 higher than last week's quote. Aluminum is trading at $0.86 per pound. That is three cents higher than last week. Lead is trading at 83 cents per pound. That is two cents higher. Nickel is back above $7 at $7.05 per pound. That is 13 cents higher than last week. 
Tin is 33 cents higher at $8.34 per pound. Cobalt is a penny lower at $14.73 per pound. And zinc is at $1.19 per pound. That is four cents higher than last week's quote. So what do the numbers say? Risk on, global economy will be growing. You can relax on the fear trade for right now. So gold and silver and platinum are lower. Palladium and copper and nickel and tin and zinc are much higher and have the wind at their back. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we are going to have the welcome comments from Anthony Vaccaro, Northern Miner Group publisher, and many more things, as you're about to hear, at the Global Mining Symposium. And he'll be introduced by Laura Daly, who is in charge of the production. And sort of a shorter thing. I I debated whether we put this in, just because it's only about six or seven minutes. But I thought, let's put it in. Maybe a lot of you haven't you know, ever attended the Global Mining Symposium. Again, you can just go to the website, northernminer.com slash GMS, and you can hear it's pretty casual and kind of fun. And so I thought, what the hey, let's just give a sample. And it's interesting. And you can hear uh, just uh, the spirit of the event, even though they're not really formal remarks, but I thought they'd still be fun to share with you guys. So with that, I hope you enjoy this little sample. And with that, I'll see you on the other side. publisher of the Northern Miner Group, Anthony Vaccaro has overall responsibility for some of the mining industry's most distinguished media brands, including the Northern Miner, Canadian Mining Journal, and Mines Handbook. Mr. Vaccaro also serves as head of global mining for Glacier's Resource Innovation Group, where he oversees such noted brands as Mining.com, Edumine, Career Mine, and Mining Intelligence. Mr. Vaccaro holds the CFA designation, has an MBA in Investment Management, and serves on the boards of the Resource Innovation Group, the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, and Women Who Rock. I would now like to turn the mic over to Anthony. Thank you very much, Laura, and welcome everyone to the Global Mining Symposium. All right, so let's get going. Thank you everyone for joining us on a Tuesday before Remembrance Day. We have a really ram-packed couple of days for you. Now we're doing it a little bit different this year. We're going to have today where you're going to get all the information you really need from the leaders of the industry to understand, help navigate through these tumultuous times that we're all living in together. Then we will take a pause for Remembrance Day to honor the fallen soldiers that help protect these incredible democracies that we're living in here. And then we'll pick it up again on Thursday. And really very, very proud of the team and very honored by the guests that we have accumulated for you to tune into, listen to, and engage with, most importantly of all. You know, we switched over to the virtual format in June with our flagship Canadian Mining Symposium, and we were really overwhelmed. I mean, it was, to state the obvious, it was circumstances that had us do that pivot. Very proud of the the Northern Miner team for making that happen. And we thought, well, listen, this is the best we can do. Let, let's do it. Let's charge ahead with the best that we, the cards that were dealt. Let's make the best hand that we can out of it. What we didn't really anticipate at the time, though, was how engaged the audience would be. Over 2,000 delegates from over 80 countries signed up for that. 
the engagement was just extraordinary. I think what happens a lot of time in physical events is some people, I feel it too at times, you feel a little bit shy. You don't know if your question is eh. getting up in front of a room and asking a question. Sometimes it can be inhibiting for some people. That seems to have dropped away on the virtual. So that has been a great feature that really we kind of discovered as we went along. The amount of questions that are coming in to and the quality of those questions is fantastic. So keep that up. <clears throat> That's what really makes these things hum along. We all miss having our drinks together after the show, but it looks like we're on track for getting those going again with the great news from uh, Pfizer yesterday with over 90%, it looks like that they're they're getting um, strong results on that vaccine. So I think we're looking at now kind of spring, early summer, possibly, um, to start getting this vaccine rolling and we can get back to whatever that new normal looks like. We'll take kind of the lessons that we've taken out of this that we've all had to go through and let's see how they all get applied. On the markets, let's take a quick look over there. Not a good day for gold, but the nice thing I think about most of our uh, the people that are viewing here, we've all been tracking, we look at the kind of metals complex, right? I mean, certainly gold is a very powerful one and it's the one that grabs a lot of headlines in the financial press. But we have some pretty savvy and astute people here as well that know how to play copper and nickel, the EVs, iron ore, uh, there's a there's a large metal complex to play. So on a day when we get great news about a vaccine, gold does go down a bit. That is to be expected. But copper went up. So the copper story. So what, when the story is becomes more about global growth and GDP increases, you're going to get that participation from copper and nickel, the EVs, iron ore. Um, and they even held up pretty well, even the, better than expected, I would say, when the story was about where we're going to get GDP Companies going out of business. Copper still was, you know, sitting around that $3 mark. Uh, and listen, you know, one day off for gold. I think the macros are there. You're going to hear from some fantastic speakers over the next couple of days. We have David Rosenberg coming on Thursday. David Rosenberg is not has not made his name as one of the most renowned economists in the world because he's a cheerleader for the metals complex. He's neutral. He's agnostic. He doesn't care. If he thinks the metals are terrible and gold is terrible, he will tell you that. And he has said that many times in the past. He's not saying it now. He is a gold bull at this point, and he's going to outline those reasons for you. There's a lot of great macro themes from a gold investing point of view that we're going to spend the next couple of days really diving into and looking at. We have one of the great gold investors and gold company builders, Rob McEwen. He's going to be here today, Canadian Mining Hall of Fame member. We have David Elliott today. Now, some people, those who are, are issuers, who actually build companies, you all know who David Elliott is. David Elliott is one of the most astute, one of the most respected uh, mining financiers, not only in Canada, but in the world. He built Haywood Research. He is the founder of Haywood Research. He generally doesn't like to do public appearances that much. He's a humble guy. He likes to go about his business and just help grow companies. But we managed to talk him into it, and he's going to be here to really share uh, the secrets of his success, how he built up his career, how he built Haywood Research in one of the preeminent houses <clears throat> in the mining space. And um, yeah, let, let's stay tuned for that. David Elliott is being inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame in 2021. So a big honor there, along with four others. We will talk about those four others as well. We have lots of time to go over who's going into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. I'm proud to serve on that, that board. The board does a fantastic job. This year, we had over a 1,000 pages to read through of fantastic nominations from you, the industry. Um, and I, I think the five choices that were made were pretty pretty exemplary. 
So yes, we will talk a bit about that as we go along, and we have lots more to dive into and to discuss. But I think right now, why don't I turn it back over to my partner in crime, Laura Daly, the Northern Miners, extraordinary event producer. Always does such a great job corralling all of our guests and making this all happen. So Laura, why don't you talk us through a little bit about the housekeeping notes, how we're going to would, uh, how to engage from, from a Q&A uh, perspective for our audience and any other kind of key details that you think would be relevant at this point in time. Over for to you, sure. Laura. For sure, Anthony. Um, welcome, everybody. And uh, as Anthony said, there's just a few housekeeping notes to make your experience a little bit better. bit of a shorter episode this time around, but hopefully you enjoyed all that. Yeah, check out the Global Mining Symposium. I think you can even ask questions. Actually, I was just on there. You can chat. You might be able to ask David Rosenberg, a ton of other people. Don't forget, this is also a networking opportunity for you, all you students out there. So join the party. And until next week, take care. Take care.